You need to play games that are worth playing even if you lose, and then making choices where you accept the possibility, the very real possibility of defeat. Welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast, a long-form conversation accompanying our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash goodandbasic. Uh, we are Joseph and Joseph, and well, here we are. Normally we talk about the videos that we've made and try to stitch them all together and talk about more of the philosophical ideas and implications of them. If you're new to the podcast, that's what you can expect here. Um, we've had some really good conversations. This is very true. And I would say they've gotten even better over time. Hopefully hopefully, all of yeah. you who are listening agree. Um, you can find our social media information in the video description and or the podcast notes. Uh, so that's really great too. We sure appreciate it. Uh, your support and listening, and Thank we're you. looking forward. We're super excited for today. Today is going to be really good. Um, the first thing we want to talk about two things. The first thing we want to talk about um, is that is well, is about Grant Thompson, right? The King of Random and his death uh, earlier this week. Yeah. Um, there's a few things that we wanted to say about that and discuss that a little bit, um, mostly related to risk taking. Um, and then the second thing we want to talk about is just a couple of observations about uh, about uh, coal and steam engines. So that should be the coal and steam engines is more related to the videos from last week, and then, well, I might turn into a footnote. The first topic is going to be probably going to take the this. This is true. We will yeah. we will see how it goes. We'll see if we can make it to the steam engines. Um, okay, so so Grant Thompson. So for those who don't know, uh, Grant Thompson is well. He ran a YouTube channel called The King of Random, which has eleven million subscribers. Um, I believe he. Uh, stopped being the main host about a, a year ago. Is that correct? Approximately about a year ago. Um, so massive YouTube channel, and Actually, you know, about two years ago. I mean, you can't walk ten feet in any direction on YouTube or almost anywhere else right now without finding out about that. So, so you probably are already aware of this. Um, and it's uh, uh, it's it's big news. I mean, yeah. So we wanted to talk a little bit. Well, actually, why don't. Let's see. Well, let's let's preface why we're thinking about this. Yeah. So. Uh, the, the main reason is that we were actually with Nate and Callie when they found out about his passing. And we were all in a car ride together. We were all uh, actually working on a filming day and uh, basically working on a collaborative video together. And uh, so, so the impact of hearing for the first time via text message um, was, was kind of huge. Um, and as a result, it's been stewing in the back of our minds for the last four or five days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I, I made a memorial video, which we posted on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that, that's a bit of background. Um, he, so, yeah. yeah so, yes, please okay, yeah, sorry. This is, this is uh, not necessarily the easiest uh, topic to approach. So, well, there, there were two things that I was thinking of, right? And so y- your, your video talking about Grant Thompson that we posted on Wednesday, uh, as of the time we're recording this podcast, has something on the order of like 60,000 views. And there have been a lot of comments, right? So I'm reading those comments, and, uh, and it was really interesting. And there was a couple things that um, I was really interested to see, a couple of observations, because they were the same things that I had been thinking about. And they were related to the fact that random happens and that random just happened. Yeah. Right. How unexpected this was. And then also the second thing um, was about the risk-taking element of going paragliding or paramotoring and, well, sort of the risk-taking nature yeah, of everything that Grant there did. Were a few, there were a few comments that were quite condemnatory for taking risks and basically saying, well, mm-hmm. you deserved it. Certainly which not is, all, but some. Which is kind of a terrible thing to say, um, but not a terrible thing to think. Uh, but I want to think through it a little bit further because so, risk is a fact of life. And also, uh, I mean, to, to say that taking risks is an immoral act would make lots of things immoral. So you need to find a way of distinguishing good risk from bad risk. Mm-hmm. Because if risk is everywhere, 
And when we're talking about taking unnecessary risks, what, what exactly do we mean? Do we mean ones that can be avoided? Is that really the goal? I mean, it, it becomes a fiddly question. You have to start distinguishing between good risk and bad risk, good random and mm-hmm. bad random. Yeah. So, well, this was the thing I was thinking about random happens, right? Because random happens is one of the taglines for the king of random channel. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, it's always been used in a positive sense, right? Like random happens and isn't that fun and wacky and amazing and, and cool, right? Yeah. Um, and it is fun, wacky and amazing and cool. But it's so interesting to me that the descriptor random happens also applies to something randomly happening, happening that you did not expect and that you do not want. Disaster. Like for instance, a death, yeah, right, and uh, um, a, a terrible paragliding or paramotoring accident, right. So, so it was so interesting to me to see the the flip side of that statement, right, um, right. The idea that well, just because random happens does not necessarily mean that it's a good thing, yeah. right. And then the question is, well, okay, so is it still a good thing to, yeah, well, for back of, lack of a better phrase, pursue randomness even if there's some negative things coming on, and then. I was thinking about the risk, um, the risk-taking element of this, right? And um, you know, so first of all, dying when you're 38 years old is is not like the greatest life outcome, right? No, that's not a thing that you should aim for, and it's not a thing that very many people do aim for, right? Um, right, and and leaving behind a wife and kids is also a very difficult situation, right? Um, but at the same time. You know, I couldn't help but think, well, you know, but I mean, Grant's been paramotoring and parasailing for what six months? More than that. Yeah, and well, he's my understanding is he's been doing quite a bit of quite a bit of it over the last six months, and it's like, yeah. look, you know, you you know the risks, and just because there's a possibility of something bad happening, just because there are risks, doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't do it. He's walking that situation with his eyes wide open. You know, and, I, and I, there's, there's, there's risks attendant on everything you do. True. You know, there's risks attendant in driving on the road. It's, it seems to me to be more important to walk into those risks with your eyes wide open than to uh, try to eliminate all risks. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a quote from Nassim Taleb, which is that uh, could, you, you would give it better than I do. It's about the calculation of cost Oh, benefit. yeah, I can't wait to talk about this. Um, I want to talk about that quote briefly and then jump into talking about our motorcycling experiences because yeah. both of us have actually ridden motorcycles. You got me into the hobby yeah, and then the hobby got me into a, a nasty wreck <laughs> and then it got you into a nasty wreck, but neither of us have any regrets about riding. Um, yeah, let, let, let's well, mine start with the quote. Nasty, to be honest, but more but anyway. raising. Yeah, so, so, okay, so those of you who don't know, Nassim Taleb is, well, he was an investor. Now mostly he's, he's an author. Um, and a speaker, but he talks a lot about risk management, which is, well, that's a pretty reasonable thing to expect from an investor, right, is to talk about risk management. He Except talks about he's the turned it into a complete impact. A system, like he, he has investigated well, he, he the thinks, tunnels of He thinks that the principles of risk management extend far beyond investing. Yeah. Fundamentally, right. Uh, so his first book, which might be his best known book, is The Black Swan, which talks about the, the outsized impact of highly unlikely events. Actually, his first book was Fooled by Randomness. Ah, okay. Followed by the Black Swan. They're all part of one massive super collection, which he calls the Incerto. So the last one that he published is called Skin in the Game. And one of the statements he has in there was really interesting to me, um, that uh, when there is a chance of extinction, of being removed from the game entirely, you cannot make a cost-benefit analysis. Right. So the way here's an example of this is the way you think about it is, you know, if 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 I wanted to get you to play Rus- Russian roulette, right? Um, so I've got the the revolver. There's six chambers, and there's a bullet in one of the chambers, and I'm going to spin it, put it to your head, and pull the trigger. How much money would you accept in order to play? To, how much money would I have to offer you in order to get you to play that game? 
right? To have a one in yeah. six chance of blowing your brains out. And of, of course, if you're even a little bit intelligent, it's like, okay, there's not an amount of money that's worth it because I have a one in six chance of being removed from the game entirely. Yeah, and right? all, all future games on yes, this planet. Yes, exactly. Right, and so, so there are some games that... Uh, that you can't do a cost-benefit analysis there. You know, you, you would think, okay, well, um, you know, if I survive, I get a million dollars, let's say. I offer you a million dollars. So I have a five and six chance of getting a yep. million dollars and a one and six chance of dying, right? So how do you run a cost-benefit analysis there? Well, the cost-benefit analysis is you pick um, five-sixths times one million dollars, which, gosh, I can't do the math, but it's whatever five-sixths of one million dollars is, uh, is your expected positive payout, and then your expected negative payout is a one in six chance of dying. But dying is so catastrophic that you can't even you might, do a calculation. You might as well run the math saying that it's infinite. Yes, and So you can do that calculation back and forth, and the math will say, no, don't do it. You have a high probability of a of an upside, but the the you have a low probability of a downside, but that downside is so catastrophic, so catastrophic, that uh, you can't even run that risk. You can't even run that risk. Then you could talk about the awkward thing that is driving, driving in a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes if you have an AI-powered car. I mean, just because your car is AI-powered doesn't necessarily mean that a bridge won't collapse or that mm-hmm. the AI won't get a bug or that it won't be hacked or that somebody who's not in or an AI car won't crash Or that you won't get a heart it, attack on the road. Or a deer will jump in at the worst possible moment. So, and, and this is where Nassim Taleb's thing gets really interesting because, because Nassim Taleb's statement, again, is you cannot do a cost-benefit analysis when there is a chance of being removed from the game, a chance of extinction. And what that seems to imply is that you just can't make a cost-benefit analysis, mm-hmm. which means you're Because there's always a chance time. of extinction. Yeah. There's always a chance of extinction. So what, how exactly do you make decisions when that so, oh-so-helpful tool and analogy is removed? When you can't make a cost-benefit analysis, when that's not the way that you're going to make a decision, how do you go about that? And, and yeah, the, the closest that I think we've come to understanding this is you do something because it is good, um, irrespective of outcome. Um, this is very similar to kind of a warrior style ethos, which is that um, you go into the battle because it was a battle worth losing, uh, where, mm-hmm. where that cost, that, that infinite cost of losing your life or whatever, is less awful than the moral cost of not doing it. Uh, and that doesn't preclude, obviously, the fact that you're trying to win. But no. what it does mean is that even to win would be best, but mm-hmm. even to lose while playing the game would be better than not playing that game. Yes. And one word that's used to try to describe this is, is honor. Um, it would be dishonorable to do that death before dishonor, more mm-hmm. or less. Yeah. And another way of rewording that, because honor is something that is very alien to our modern uh, sense, we tend to think of honor as... Uh, as reputation or the way others esteem you, that's irrelevant to this. The way I'm thinking of it is in more of the stoic sense, which is you made the right choice. Nothing else matters. So this sounds like a good time to talk about motorcycles. Yeah. Um, So a bit of background information. I have a titanium femur, um, snapped it into three pieces (laughs) in a nasty wreck, which should have killed me. Um, uh, I had a wife and two kids at the time. I have a wife and three and uh, three and a quarter kids right now. Um, And... uh, you know, so I was riding motorcycles. And Which is amazing. inherently... I Very mean, risky. Yeah, I mean, a, a little more so than just driving around in a car. Yeah. A little I mean, more so. It's a little bit like... Uh, <laughs> well, and not only do you have a higher chance of getting in an accident, but the accident itself is, is going to be worse. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, right. So this is Nassim Taleb would have a fun time. I don't. I can't recall his time. He's written about motorcycles, but he would have a fun time talking about it. He talks because, about risks that are similar. Because he, he talks about uh, when he, he talks about risk, he talks about two elements that you need to balance, and one is the probability of the positive and negative outcomes, and the other is the severity of the positive and negative yes. outcomes. Right. Yes, Which is the much. Russian roulette thing, right? Even though the probability of even though you will, you have a very lo- a relatively low chance of getting your brains blown out. It's such a severe outcome that it's not a good game to play. Yeah, and so cost-benefit analysis, I know we can't make that calculation, but let's talk about it for motorcycles for just a moment. Um, On the one side, you have the downsides. Let's talk about those first. Um, Mm -hmm. You are hurtling across the highways and down the streets on a vehicle with only two wheels, therefore less traction and easier to slide, with basically no walls around you and no protection. No airbags. You are hurtling along with a giant cheese grater underneath you, which we call oh. pavement, and with a bunch of very heavy, blocky objects with independent wills of their own moving around you at high speeds. And so a lot could go wrong. So what's at the upside? What is the upside and what could possibly make that worth doing? Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be worth it for everyone. I'm not necessarily recommending this. But, okay, so upsides, you transport yourself from one place to another. Car does that too. So suddenly that's not a uniquely motorcycle thing. Um, And you can't carry cargo and you can't bring other people. So let's put that on the negative side again. Okay, it's looking like motorcycles are a terrible idea. So why do it? Um, We went on a couple of long-distance motorcycle rides. um, and Which was awesome. Yeah. Uh, You know, riding a motorcycle is a decision you have to make yourself. I will neither encourage nor dehort. But um, it's really awesome. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So the, the upside, I, I need to describe it in poetic terms because that's the best way I, I know of. Um, it is an experience. It is a raw sense of being alive. And part of that, a very large part of that, is the risk. It's not divorced from the risk. It's the, the extremely and I would almost say exquisite uh, realization of your mortality moment by moment. Um, it's like visceral fear at all these things that are coming at you and the awareness that life could end at any moment. Um, it puts you very much in connection with that. In addition, it puts you very much in connection with your body. I mean, as you're riding, it's a much more physical way to ride. Yeah. And then the smells. And you talk about the smells. You, you were the first one who know, mentioned this to me. The smells. Um, but when I started riding, it was, it was instantly apparent. You're moving through the air so fast that the transition from one smell to another as you're riding is insanely fast. You drive past Subway and suddenly you smell the sandwiches and then you go in a couple uh, blocks further and suddenly you smell the canal and it all happens so fast that it's like everything becomes more vivid. And then the temp- air temperature is another one of those yeah. things that you're just very, very closely in connection with. There's an area uh, near where I used to live where you'll drop down into these river bottoms and there's an instant like 10 degree temperature drop. And then you pop up on the hill and it pops up again. And yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> when you drive past a semi and the wind from the semi, that wind cone as yeah. it's passing through, makes you bend to the side, terrifying. <laughs> um, but basically, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. Poetically speaking, it, it was it, No, I think so you're right. It's, it's experiential. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that... Uh, you feel alive. Yeah. In a way that you don't otherwise. I mean, it's it's a very raw thing, and part and, of it is that awareness of your mortality. So you're saying maybe that's worth the, maybe. the risk. So here's the question. Um, I, after writing for less than a year, um, was on my way home from uh, my first day at a new job, funny enough, and 
I was on my way home, totally normal commute, not even on the freeway. I got off the freeway early because I wanted to be safe. And then as I'm riding along, I went to an intersection. I'm the only guy on this side of the street, right? And then on the opposite side of the street, uh, I mean, coming from the other direction, a guy is in the uh, left turn lane and not turning, like he's just there. And so I say, I'm probably safe, and I'm watching him very carefully, and I go up to kind of the point of no return where I have to go through the intersection. And right as I'm at the point of no return, he makes a left turn. And so he suddenly pulled in front of me, he's perpendicular to my direction, and I have three choices, none of which are good, in a split second. I can swerve right, in which case I will clip his bumper, slide under the car, and turn into hamburger under the car. Or I can swerve left, clip his bumper, and go into a meat grinder slide. Or I can hit the brakes as hard as I can and ram him. And uh, what I did is I hit the brakes as hard as I could and I rammed him. And uh, I was going 50 miles an hour at the time. Do the math in kilometers and that's a big number. And then I, uh, I don't know exactly what happened next. I saw a lot of sky. Everything was spinning for a bit. And when I was aware of what was going on, my right knee was about three inches shorter. My, my thigh was three inches shorter than it was supposed to be. My femur had snapped in three places and shunted in like this. And so surgery, bed rest, um, I also snapped the other leg in a couple places, but it only broke one femur. And, uh, you know, spent a long time learning how to walk again and learning how to recover. And my physical therapist told me I was in my 70s physically. Mm-hmm. Um, was it still worth it to ride? And I am coming to a position where I think that philosophically, and for my emotional health and well-being, I need to say yes. And the reason I need to say yes is to validate the choice of having ridden uh, as, as part of my story, as part of my experience, as part of what has brought me to being who and what I am now, um, risks included. I made that choice. I validate that choice. That was me that made that choice. Mm-hmm. And um, in addition to that, I mean, I've learned a lot from that process, and it, it influenced the direction my life went in a number of ways, including... Probably speaking, I don't think this YouTube channel would be a thing without that. I mean, it's a lot of steps down that chain, yeah. but it's down that chain. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, well, and that's sort of the thing that I think about Grant Thompson, right? So I didn't know him nearly as well as you did, obviously, right? And there's so many things about his life that I don't know. And so I can't make that calculation, was it worth it for him to paraglide? Right. Right. That's I cannot comment on that. I just don't have the necessary information, right? But what I can think is that there's all sorts of things I do where I am engaging in risk. Yeah. Right. And, and, and including cases where I am engaging in potentially lethal risk. Right. And uh, my own philosophy of, of it is, well, what you want to do is you want to do it with your eyes wide open. And it needs to and, be a very conscious and choice. Decide, and decide that you can, that win or lose, you're willing to play the game. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's the same thing that I, that I think about Grand is, uh, you know, like I can't decide. I, I can't tell if it was a smart decision or not a smart decision to go paragliding. But, but I do think that the approach to life of exploration and um, being willing to play games, even if you lose, yeah, I do think that's, that's valuable. I think, well, I think that's partially what, what honor and morality constitute. Yeah, and courage. Is, is, and courage, right? Including is the willingness, courage. Is, is the willingness to engage in things that have uncertain outcomes and that, that could detrimentally affect you. Yeah. There's a, there's a chapter. Taleb in, would say to have skin in the game. Yeah, to have skin in the game. I mean, that's that's fundamentally. There you go. So. Yeah. To prove that you have skin in the game, every so often you have to come up with a rash. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, and, I mean, you're not wrong, right? 
I think, honestly, that's where a lot of these sorts of experiences come. They're like, it's not a lesson. It's not a forward-looking thing. It's a backward-looking thing. It's a validation of the decision. It's a validation of saying, yes, I when I said I was willing to pay the, the price inherent in this choice, mm-hmm. I meant it Yeah, because I have paid. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some sense, you're not you're revealing the nature of the choice you already made. Yes. Was it's it a poser choice or was it eyes wide open? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which actually, you know, doing a little bit of a leap here, the whole appropriate technology thing, thing I, the whole appropriate technology thing, I think, is, is intimately linked with this because the whole appropriate technology thing is, is a question of uh, adopting the maximum possible responsibility for how things happen in your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same idea. Taking responsibility for your own life in a more, uh, for say, your material to, to the greatest degree possible. Yeah, right. Responsibility you know, is a good I, thing. I can't take on responsibility for whether or not a terrorist group bombs Salt Lake City. Sure. You know, I don't have the resources to do that. Right. But to the maximum degree possible, I am trying to take take on the burden of my own safety and yeah. my own decisions. And let's redefine it just a little bit because let's say you're a farmer and you grow all your own food. You're responsible for your own food. Um, you never limit a dependency on the weather, on water, mm-hmm. on drought, on climate, on all these things. Oh, yeah, you're still very dependent in many ways. Yes, but those things which could hypothetically be in your control are, and you've accepted responsibility for them. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that's the way to look at it is there's, there's the bucket of th- choices that you could have and you're taking responsibility for all the ones that are available, not necessarily the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's what I think the whole lesson from, from, from Grant Thompson is, right, is the lesson is, well, uh, should you stop doing crazy stuff? And the answer is, well, you know, we'd want to know a little more about what kind of crazy stuff it is, right? There's you a, want to make sure it is worth it. But I think the, the, the lesson that I pull from it is, um, well, yeah, you want to go engage in risks and you want to go play games that you're capable of losing as long as it's the kind of game that is, is valuable to, to play even if you lose and that, and that that's what you should go do. Maybe even that you have an obligation to go do it. Yeah. Maybe. There are examples of games like this, like personal self-defense or the defense of your family, uh, where it is a game better to play and lose than to not play. Um, well, I mean, there's actually lots of other games like this too, right? Like uh, we all play this game when you go, uh, when you go to school, right? So uh, people, when they go to university, if you're, let's say you're trying to get into med school, right? I mean, heck, let's just say you're aiming for a four-year degree. Whatever it is that you're aiming for, there's a chance that you're going to lose there's a chance you are not going to reach your goal, right? And so the question is, how can you play that game in a way that even if you lose, it will have been worth it? Not as good as winning, maybe, but but still, but still, better you, would stand, you would stand by your decision. Yeah, better than You need to play, play games that are better to play and lose than to not play. Which actually was an insight that we had uh, while playing Settlers of Catan, bizarrely enough, right? Was that um, when that first came up? I don't know if it's when it first came up, but it's, it's, it, it, it's come up multiple times while we've played yeah. Settlers of Catan, right? Um, you know... If you're playing Settlers of Catan with three people, yourself and then three other people, uh, you know, three of you are going to lose, right? Which means that if you play that game, uh, you know, if you play Settlers of Catan uh, in a group of four people over the course of 100 games, you have an expected win rate of 25%. Well, that means you have an expected loss rate of 75%. So Settlers of Catan, that's, that's a game, that's a system that's so much fun to engage in that you're willing to suck at it 75% of the time. Yeah. And you're still going to come back and keep playing. Yeah. Right. In and, many ways, and this is the definition of a good game. Yeah, that's that's one of the ways that you know it's a good game because you actually do want to play it even if you don't win. Yeah. Gosh. 
this idea started spilling over into other things, like even relationships. Mm -hmm. We were talking about Shakespeare's quote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all," mm -hmm. which, you know, um, could be contentious, but maybe maybe the way to interpret it is in the case of this. Mm -hmm. It was a choice worth making even if I lost. And, and that model is so... Uh, it smacks of, it has the flavor and smell and texture of something that is fundamentally true. Mm -hmm. uh, par parenthetically, so we're using this vocabulary games to describe things that we normally don't think of as games. Yeah. Right. So that deserves some explanation. The philosophic grounding for that mostly comes from two people, um, Ludwig Wittgenstein and then Jean Piaget. So Ludwig Wittgenstein is like, I don't know, the most important philosopher of the 20th century, Basically. maybe. Pretty darn close. Partially anyway. because he created a massive theory of everything, which influenced everybody. And then over time, he came to hate his first theory of everything. And so there's early Wittgenstein and late Wittgenstein. And between the two of them, you can have enough quotes to support any position philosophically proposed. Unfortunately, it means that academics can write papers about this ad nauseum. So, yep. so that's good too. In um, So, But anyway, so w uh, one of Wittgenstein's big insights was related to language. The philosophy, the philosophy of language is a super, super, super snarly subject. And what Wittgenstein thought was that the way you should look at language is not that words refer to things, because there's lots of words that don't seem to refer to things at all, right? Um, including, for example, speech acts. If the judge says, I condemn you, it's actually the word that is the action. It's not referring to an action. Um, is just is just one example. Anyway, so what he said was, well, no, the, the way you want to think about language is that it's a game, that I make a move in the game, and that's my sentences and words, and then you make a move in the game, and what we're trying to do is, is fundamentally play a game with language together. And then the, the second... Interact with a set of rules, basically. Yes. Well, but, but also, and here's the other important thing that's related to the rules thing, is it can be a set of implicit rules. So the second theoretical source for, uh, for using games, for using the vocabulary of games to describe things that are, well, not game-like, at least not apparently, is Jean Piaget, who's a child developmental psychologist. And um, he basically construed human behavior as a game and came up with some very interesting things. For example, that you can play games without knowing what the rules are yeah. um, explicitly. Um, so anyway, so that's that's the theoretical grounding for this. Is there's there in the twentieth century there were like large thrusts of thought that said, well, okay, what if we looked at things as games? And one of the helpful things that you can do then is then you can you know start to look at you know paragliding or motorcycle riding as a game and yeah. say, okay, well, uh, is this a fun game to play? And do I want to keep playing it? I want to talk about YouTube as a game yeah. for a moment because okay. we've so far talked about paramotoring as a game, motorcycling as a game, relationships as a game, and combat as a game. Mm -hmm. um, it's these things where there are sets of rules and you could win or lose, um, broadly, broadly speaking. Um, and basically the idea is it ne you need to play games that are worth playing even if you lose and, and making choices where you accept the possibility, the very real possibility of defeat. Uh, or, or disaster or mm -hmm. chaos or whatever. Um, I want to talk about YouTube. So Grant gets into the YouTube game, right? Um, and we know from looking backwards that he played it and won. He won big. He mm -hmm. won 11 million subscribers, massive reach, he massive... Won about as big as you can win. About as about. big as you could win, roughly speaking. And that is awesome and clearly better than losing. One of the things that's interesting to me is when he described making his first hundred videos where he said, you know, I'm learning all this stuff for myself and I want to share it. I want to put it out. And in that position as a, as a nobody YouTuber, I know it's hard to believe. Grant Thompson was once a nobody YouTuber. Um, is that still a good game to play if you lose? Mm -hmm. And in order to play that game at all, you have to think that it is. Because mm -hmm. there are no guarantees in YouTube. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he said he was going to make those first hundred videos and just see what happened. Um, but he, he committed to himself, looking forward, 
100 videos. And if you look at the quality of stuff that he was putting out for 100 videos, imagine the number of man hours for each of those. Uh, usually he'll have a video like the one where he makes blowguns, right? Um, that currently has millions and millions of views. When he made that video, um, you look at the end of the, of the video and suddenly he has darts piled up over here and a bunch of pristinely made prototypes in a pile over here, mm -hmm. all in different colors. And you look at that and what that represents is time, commitment, attention to detail. And then you know he's not showing you the garbage prototypes that came out first. And so the, the amount of effort that he was putting into those multiplied by 100 videos gives you a sense of that was the level to which he was willing to play that game regardless of whether he won or lost which is just an interesting thing. I've, I've been thinking about this question in relation to our YouTube journey because, you know, we've been at it for about two years now. And uh, we're at 12K subscribers as of today, which yep. is amazing. Um, it's if, amazing. If you told me two years ago that 12,000 people would be listening to something that I said, I would have thought you were high on something. Yeah, probably. So. Um, yeah, high on life, I guess. <laughs> uh, and or uh, crazy amounts of optimism. Mm -hmm. But... Um, you know, the first year, it took us a year to get to 100 subscribers, which is pretty typical. So playing the YouTube game, you need to be able to play that game if you're going to play that game without needing to win to make it worth it. You don't go into debt for YouTube. Uh, not, not personal debt, not relationship debt, not social debt. You can't do that. You have to decide that it is worth it now, even if I lose. And that's a really interesting thing, and it, it's another example uh, taken from, from Grant's uh, life. He shared with us a hundred videos that he said it was worth it to do that, even if no one necessarily engaged in them. So this is also interesting, too, because if you make this, if you use this calculus in your life, it's incredibly sobering. It will change the way you look at things. Is if you look at all the things you're doing in your life and say, would I do this even if I fail at it? Um, there's a lot of things that you'll stop doing. And then there's a lot of things you'll start doing. And then there's also a lot of things that you will keep doing, but it will absolutely change the way you do Some it. Some of the things you start doing might even be risky, but you will say, you know, it's worth it to do. One, mm -hmm. one example of this is like my sister's uh, quit school at the recommendation of her professors to become a full-time artist. Now, that is a very, very, very risky game. She has the talent where she can make it. I mean, she is an exceptionally talented artist uh, to the point where her professors were saying, I don't know, we can't teach you anything. Um... Don't waste your time here. But now she's on her own and she's in this position of uh, the risks are on her. She's taken responsibility for mm -hmm. herself. And she and can't she can't blame her idiot college professors if no, something goes wrong. Because no. it won't have been it will not have been their fault. No. She's in the position of having accepted her own destiny and she's fighting for it. And anything involving the arts, particularly in the age of the internet where anything where, where art is cheap. I mean, we have access to so many prints and free stuff and public domain stuff and all the old art is free. You can hang that up on your wall. So how, how do you make it as an artist? And, and she's doing that, exposing herself to that risk, mm -hmm. playing the game and basically saying, you know, I, I want this so badly and it is so worth doing and I, it is so wrapped up in who and what I am and it is so good that it's worth it even if I lose. Mm-hmm. The only other alternative why you would get into art is if you were insanely naive and thought you were just going to make it, which, you know, I've been there <laughs> Which before. is another reason why people channel. ride motorcycles and go parasailing, too. Yeah. So, okay. All right. 
Okay, well, that's. Uh, is there anything else we want no, to say about okay. that's it. All right. Um, we want to announce, uh, we want to talk to you guys for a second about Audible. So, uh, Audible is uh, one of the first sponsors that we've been able to get on the show. They, and we're actually yeah. really happy to do this. One of the things that we've talked about uh, regarding ads is that we didn't want to do an ad that we didn't actually really like the product. And happily, Audible is something that we really We've do like. We've both been using this for years. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that they've allowed us to start putting links for their material. Um, it's, it's an incredibly useful thing. I, I use it daily. Like that's, that's a major part of how I consume books because I don't physically enjoy reading. Um, I, I know, strange for a law student slash philosophy interested person. Yeah, I just, I just don't enjoy it. I would rather have my ears busy and be able to work on something with my hands and be working on a project mm-hmm. instead of having my hands and eyes and attention all focused on the same thing, which, which is, could I, be a moral failing. Item number 377 on uh, how do I love the Audible, let me count the ways. It lets me work on other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's one of the reasons I love Audible, yeah. too. If you somehow have been living under a rock and don't know what Audible is, it's a ginormous online repository of audiobooks. Which is um, no matter the black swan. No matter what you're interested in, you will find something there. Uh, we'll We'll link to a couple of uh, to Lev's books and a couple of our favorite books down in the show notes. Um, and no and matter you what you're interested in us. listening to, uh, you'll be able to uh, you'll you'll find uh, something really great that you're looking for. Um, so if you want to go use their free trial, you get a month. Um, goodness, I'm sorry, this is the first time I've done this. So um, you can sign up for a one month free trial. It's I think 14.95 after that per month, and you can go to audibletrial.com/goodandbasic to. Um, pick up on that free trial. Um, you can cancel at any time, and it's an amazing service. Um, and uh, we hope you'll enjoy it as much as we have. So, so that's there we go. Okay, and so steam uh, engines. Steam engines, yes. We were going to hit that at the end. Um, that's the other theme for the videos we did this week. We had one on the new Coleman steam engine, and we had one on the coal boat system, the, the canal system through the UK in particular, although similar canal systems existed in Holland and elsewhere, um, even Sweden, and even Sweden. My ancestors are Swedish. I was really excited when I found out about that. Um, But yeah, this canal system was what allowed coal to become a domestic part of life. Before, I mean, where are you going to use coal? It's heavy. So you have to use it right next to the coal mine. And or why are you carrying this stuff hundreds of miles when you can just burn wood or something else? I mean, on the plains, the American settlers got away with burning dried cow patties. Lots of fuel just sitting everywhere. Yeah. So, I mean, why, why switch over to coal? And then the answer is, well, when it becomes more cheap, more economical, more convenient to use, and that doesn't happen until you have a way of transporting heavy stuff long distance. Mm-hmm. Well, this is steam. something interesting, too, because I think we all underestimate the value of the infrastructure around us. Like, I can, I can right now get in my car, and the road that runs outside this university runs all the way down to the tip of South America. Yeah. You know, like... It, and, and it's all one road, and that's amazing, right? And it, and it runs through a lot of uh, countries that are not as developed as the United States is, to, to say the least, right? Um, you know, and it's the same road that one, runs through Washington, D.C. It runs through Anchorage, Alaska, um, right? And that and infrastructure... to the level where we have a single road system that interfaces and, with And that other, infrastructure all makes all kinds of things possible. Yeah, to right? You cannot underestimate the value of that infrastructure. Yeah. Or, you know, for example, the internet, right? Because there's no way that I can distribute my words right now to somebody in Ghana... Uh, but the internet lets me do that, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's another one of these infrastructural things. I just don't think you can underrate the importance of infrastructure. Yeah, it's it's the it's the matrix in which we operate. And I, I mean yeah. that in the old sense of the word. So nowadays when we say matrix, we mean the movie and we mean like mm-hmm. entering a computer. But the, the old way of thinking of it is the uh, 
is the, the glue that's holding everything together. So uh, like the mortar in a house is the matrix. It's the, the mother stone from which, which, which links all the other things together. I did a really bad job explaining that. Well, it's it's become it's so ubiquitous yeah. through the movie that yeah, unfortunately <laughs> it's it's almost easier to think of it in terms of the movie than it is to think of it in terms of anything else. If you're a math person, then of course you know about matrices, and that's a helpful way to think about it too. But even that, you know, I don't know. Those movies really did expand our consciousness of of what a matrix is. It did so. such a good job for creating a giant philosophical thought experiment. Like they, they're fun, they're cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one video, mostly about the, the network of infrastructure that had to be in place in order for us to rely on coal, which is when the Industrial Revolution is able to take off with steam power. But one of the other ones we did was on the new Coleman steam engine, which is more or less the first useful steam engine uh, that was actually able to do work. But it wasn't the first steam engine. The first steam engine was, you know, thousands of years earlier. Well, more than a thousand years earlier. Uh, Huron of Alexandria was playing with them in 100 AD and in the first century AD. And the, uh, the ability to make steam engines, um, armorers were capable of making a lot of the tools used. Mm-hmm. And then you have clockmakers uh, from like, the th- we've seen a clock from the 1300s when we were at uh, uh, Salisbury Cathedral. Yeah. And th- this sort of thing, I mean, the pieces were in place. For a long time, the Antikythera mechanism uses uh, uses gears, and that's also from the first century AD. Incredibly precise, tiny gears, and so if they have that level of precision, they have metalworking, they have all this stuff. What's going on? Why don't you have you know prime movers that aren't muscle and wind? Why why do you not have steam engines? And then that idea, or the need for it, or really that, I mean. Once you have a fully developed steam engine, there's a ton of advantages. If you have a partially developed steam engine, maybe you just say, eh, it's not even worth pursuing. Wind power is better. I can just make a water wheel. It's cheaper, faster, more efficient, and it works, unlike this thing. But, I mean, we were sitting with all of the necessary ingredients in place for over a thousand years for steam engines to come along. And that makes me wonder what what else we're missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's the nutshell. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Good and Basic Podcast. We are grateful for your support on a continuing basis, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>